it's time to sit back and relax with your favorite drink and listen. Tonight is the first piece featured on my channel by Mr. Luke Hemingway. You may already know his work from the I'm a Ranger to Wolf Lake National Park series. There's a link to his Twitter in the description. My ex-husband just escaped from a maximum security prison. I helped the FBI prove he was a serial killer. I stared vacantly, wide-eyed at nothing in particular. My ears rang. The only sound penetrating my fugue state was the sound of my thumping heart pulsating the blood around my trembling body. The droning monotones of the federal agent's voices droned in my head, like someone was screaming at me as I sank below the skin of a pool of water. Amy, are you okay? Do you need me to call an ambulance? Special Agent Rodriguez asked, concerned. I turned to him, trying to tune back into the land of the living. I just managed to shake my head in disagreement. No, I just need a minute, I murmured. I know this is a lot to take in, but I need you to give me the green light to get you and your children under federal witness protection. Agent Quince and Agent Bodkins here will take you, Ashley and Sadie, to a safe house until we have him under arrest and back in prison where he belongs. The agent's tone was sincere. How did he escape? I thought he was in a maximum security. You told me he was in Florence. You told me he'd never see the light of day again. You told me this nightmare was over. I began to lose it, going off on a tangent. Special Agent Rodriguez held his palms up to me, as if apologizing for his promise coming back to haunt him, but also to try and get me to calm down. The agent poised himself. Um, at around 2 a.m. this morning, your ex-husband, Robert Cassidy, murdered two Florence prison guards, viciously assaulted a nurse, and stole their uniforms and key passes in the process. It seems that Cassidy had collected various items over a period of time, such as vinegar, baking soda, and a couple of man-made shoes. He also did his homework. He learned the guard schedules, the prison's protocols and procedures, and so on. He even waited until the fewest and least experienced guards were on duty that night. Everything was planned to the letter. Around 1 a.m., Cassidy faked a seizure using the vinegar and soda mixture. There was a young guard on duty who, once seeing a prisoner spasming on the floor, foaming from the mouth, simply opened his cell and ran in to apply first aid. I don't know whether it was greenness, poor training, or just the panic of the situation, but the kid didn't raise the medical alarm or call for assistance first, and Cassidy anticipated this. The staff found the guard under the bedsheets to create the appearance of someone sleeping. He was wearing Cassidy's prison attire was found to have a shiv wound to his abdomen, and his neck was badly broken. Well, once he had his disguise, he made his way off the wing using the key passes. Once he was getting towards the staff and visitors area of the prison, Cassidy waited in the staff bathroom. Here, he ambushed another guard. Cassidy threatened him with his shiv, ordering him to put out a message that an inmate had escaped from a wing on the opposite side of the prison. The staff member agreed to comply, but once he sent out the message... Cassidy killed him. Oh, not sure if Cassidy had a grudge against this man, or he was just in a killing frenzy from being locked up for 30 months. But they found that guard in one of the cubicles, with 27 stab wounds to his neck and face. He 
His left ear and right cheek were bitten off and his skull was badly fractured. It was a mess by all accounts. Anyway, the false announcement did what Cassidy wanted it to do. With all the commotion happening, the main body of the guards were concentrated towards the opposite side of the prison. While this was happening, Cassidy defrauded his way into the staff medical room of the prison, using his now-acquired blood-soaked uniform as a way of conning the nurse to let him inside for medical care. She told us in a statement that Cassidy claimed the escaped prisoners had stabbed him, and he needed urgent medical assistance. Well, the nurse obviously didn't recognize him. I mean, why would she? She said, once inside, he assaulted her. He didn't kill her, obviously, but staff found her savagely beaten, bound, and gagged with tape, locked in the utility cupboard. Cassidy stole her car keys, ID pass, and her nurse's uniform. He smashed the fire alarm glass and used her uniform and pass to make his way out of the prison, with the staff evacuating to a place of safety. We found the nurse's car earlier this evening. It was wrecked in a ditch on Route 85. So, he's been in the wild for 20 hours now could literally be anywhere. There's a huge possibility he could be coming for you or the girls. I sighed heavily in disbelief. You told me if I helped you, it would be over. Now you're telling me me and the girls have to go on the run because the animal has managed to escape the most secure prison in the United States? The agent sighed in defeat. Yes, I know, Amy. Texas has the death penalty, so we thought he'd have the needle by now. That crafty bastard hit over ten girls' bodies, traded the locations to the DA for life in prison. He was locked up in Florence for two and a half years, until last night. He's been planning his escape ever since we had him locked up. Now, he's out. He's out for blood. So I need to know, where's Ashley right now? She's at university in Denver. She's in Colorado? The agent looked horrified. He pulled his radio from his belt and began organizing his agents outside, ordering them to get a convoy prepared to head to Denver, ASAP. I jumped up. Please, let me go with you. If Robert is still in Colorado, then Ashley's in danger. So please, send Sadie with your team and get her out of San Antonio. Get her somewhere safe. And then, when I have Ashley back with me, safe in my arms, then we can meet up with Sadie at the safe house until this is over. I begged the agent. Honestly, Amy, I don't think it's wise. I think you should stay with our agents and... No, I'm not going to sit in some safe house surrounded by armed federal agents while my baby girl is out there, unprotected, unaware her psychopath of her stepfather's on the loose. Take Sadie. Your team can keep her safe while me and you go and get Ashley. I bartered. Amy, I really don't think... The agent began to deny me before I cut him off again. Look, I did what I did for you. Now you're going to do this for me, I demanded, and my position was final. The agent nodded in defeat. Okay, he breathed. Is there any chance Cassidy could know where Ashley is now? I thought hard, but eventually shook my head with confidence. No, Ashley left for college one year after Robert's sentence. There's no way he should know. Good. Then let's get going, the agent said, a touch of haste to his exit. I left my house, and with it, my youngest daughter in the arms of eight highly trained federal agents. Sadie, being only five years old, 
was young enough for me to have her believe that she was Ashley's full sister. I'd always told her that her father was the same as her older sister's. My first husband wasn't perfect, but at least he wasn't a murdering psychopath. However, nevertheless, if Robert was going to be coming for anyone, it would be her. As I tried to call Ashley's mobile, unsuccessfully, by the way, I laughed at the irony of the fact that when I'm with Ashley, she's constantly on her device, yet when I need to give her some urgent news, she's conveniently unavailable. However, I couldn't help but reminisce about my life up until this point. I met Robert Cassidy when I was 35. I'd recently just got divorced from my first husband, Ashley's father, Jeff Benning. Jeff was always a bit of a control freak. He was very old-fashioned, expecting me to cook, clean, and keep my mouth shut when he was watching the game. As our relationship soured over the years, he'd given me the odd smack around, picked at my aging and sagging body as well as gotten drunk and slept with other women behind my back. We divorced six years ago, after I finally got up the courage and strength to walk away from him. Ashley was only eleven years old when me and Jeff went our separate ways. He tried to manipulate her into going with him. Ashley was very much a daddy's girl. He was quite successful in turning her against me. Thankfully, I was able to obtain proof of his violent drunk behavior, as well as evidence of his infidelity. I took him for full custody of our child and half of his financials during the proceedings. I used that money to get away from Phoenix and set up a new life in San Antonio. After a few months of sulking and feeling sorry for myself and my new single life, I decided it was time to get my glad rags on and get back on the dating scene. I'd seen a poster advertising a single speed dating evening at the local bar. I thought, what the hell to it, and that night I got dressed up, put makeup on for the first time in three years, and made myself presentable for the Bachelors of South Texas. I sat in that bar, nursing a lukewarm bottle of Coors Light, all the while listening to every 40-year-old virgin talk about their comic book collection, every mama's boy spending more time on the phone telling me how there's room in his mother's basement for us both, every self-obsessed attention seeker who only wants to talk about themselves and the painfully obvious lies about their lives. But it didn't matter, because when I did manage to come across a man who actually bordered on normal, no matter how interested they seemed, once I told them about how I was a single mother with a preteen, I'd lost them. I was about to give up on the night, when all of a sudden my final speed date of the evening dropped himself in the seat opposite me. Well, he was the most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen. His face was perfectly formed, his square jawline, which was cleanly shaven, yet took nothing away from his masculine appearance. His jet black hair was gelled in traditional 1960s slick back hairstyle. He had a highly athletic build. I imagined he was a swimmer or a boxer in his spare time. He wore his muscle-fitted black shirt as well as he wore his aura of self-assurance. His musky scent had my knees trembling. I didn't stand a chance. Well, I guess the saying's true. If something seems too good to be true, then it probably is. I sometimes chuckle at how true that statement applied to Robert Cassidy. Well, our relationship blossomed almost immediately. He was everything I needed at that point in my life. He was kind, charming, and passionate. He told me I was beautiful and sexy. He told me my ex-husband was a moron for not appreciating what he had. He made me feel like I was 19 again. 
Oh, I don't know whether it was the fact I was vulnerable, naive, stupid, or a combination of all three. But he was living with me and Ashley within a matter of weeks. Oh, he gave me some sob story about how he'd just moved to San Antonio after his own messy divorce. His ex-wife had taken him for everything, so he didn't have a fixed address and was between motels. Robert was extremely vague about his past and his previous marriage. I never questioned it. I was simply too giddy with that handsome and charming man and how he wanted me. Within six months, I fell pregnant to him with Sadie. And this was when the alarm bells began to ring. He refused to undertake in anything that involved his background being examined or his picture being taken for social media. I told myself he was just looking for a fresh start, and I could understand that. However, as I lay at home, getting bigger and bigger, was Robert tending to my every need? Was he telling me that no matter how much my body was changing, he would always love me? No, and no. In fact, his time spent with me became very sparing. When I was about seven months pregnant with Sadie, Robert claimed he was going to finally get a job in order to help with the financial strain that the baby would put on us. I used my divorce settlement to buy him a car so he could take up couriering work. I thought he was finally trying to pitch in after me supporting him for the past year. However, this was just another one of his lies. He'd be gone for days, even weeks at a time. He'd come back after such periods of time with a bit of money in his pocket and a smile on his face. All the money rarely found my hand or one of our bills. He'd invest in new clothes, fresh jewellery or something else that he refused to disclose. It got to a point in our relationship where asking too many questions made Robert's superficial mask of charm and sanity slip. Just for a split second, he showed me the monster that lay underneath. When he didn't attend the birth of Sadie because he was too busy on another work trip in Kansas, I knew that this was going to be the pattern of our relationship from now on. Unexplained absences, missing backstory, brief displays of vile hate and anger at being dared to be questioned by a pathetic little bitch such as myself. It wasn't all bad, though. Robert gave me the odd glimpse of the early days, just enough so I wouldn't think this horrible version of him wasn't permanent. In retrospect, it was just his way of keeping me around. Plus, when Jeff eventually moved to Texas, mainly to keep tabs on me and the girls, he'd come around, mainly demanding to see Ashley, and he'd regularly speak to me in a derogatory manner, at which point Robert would step in. He could crush Jeff like an ant with a simple icy glare. Jeff would never say it out loud, but Robert scared the hell out of him. And I'm not ashamed to say I got some pleasure out of that at the time, but it did make one thing abundantly clear. Jeff, despite being a bully, an abuser, a full-on asshole, well, even he could see that Robert Cassidy was pure evil. Agent Rodriguez and I climbed into a blacked-out SUV along with two other agents and took off towards Denver. I sat in the back of the vehicle, desperately trying to contact Ashley. I assumed she must have left her phone in her dorm room while her college buddies went to a bar. I hoped that that was the case anyway, but to be perfectly honest, she rarely had time for me. As the car tore towards the New Mexico border, Agent Rodriguez's phone began to shine to life. The agent answered, putting the call on speaker. The voice was that of a detective from the Dallas Police Department. Agent Rodriguez, it's Detective Dan Hepworth here, Dallas PD. I think you'll have dealt with one of my colleagues, Detective Earnshaw. 
Yeah, that's right. Where is he? The agent asked, slightly confused. Oh, um, he's been reassigned, so I've taken over his caseload. You asked me to send an officer to Jeff Benning's home in order to keep a check on him? The detective explained with fluency. Yes, I did. Have you managed to get someone out there? The agent asked. Yes, I did. I'm sorry, agent, but, well, he's dead, the detective said bluntly. The agent winced. What happened? He asked, sounding tentative, a little on edge about the potential response. Well, I um, don't know how to say this well, but uh, the officer I sent just radioed in. He said he thought he saw someone lurking around the back of the property on his arrival, so he went to investigate. He found the back door ajar, and inside he found Mr. Benning dead. The detective sounded empty. I, meanwhile, crumbled. Well, I hated Jeff for what he'd become, how he treated me, and the things he did, and what he said to me. But there was a time when I'd loved him. We were married. We had a child together. I brought Robert Cassidy into our lives. I was to blame. Agent, uh, you should know. Benning showed signs of extreme torture. There's a lot of damage here. Benning clearly didn't give him what he wanted straight away. He obviously wanted information, and now he's got it. Fair play to the guy. Benning put up a good fight. His car's gone, too. He's got what he wanted. Information and a vehicle. He's on the move. Oh, shit. Special Agent Rodriguez punched the steering wheel in anger before exhaling his stress. Okay, thanks, Detective. Keep me updated. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, Agent. Please, are there any other people that need protecting from this animal? I'll be happy to send an officer or two out to help. You told him where Ashley is, I chipped in, looking Agent Rodriguez square in the eye via the rearview mirror. The agent's eyes widened oh so slightly, and he stomped the gas pedal hard as he barked orders down the phone. Yes, Detective. I'm currently en route to Denver to retrieve Ashley Banning. We believe that's where Robert Cassidy is heading. I'll be redirecting a lot of my team from the safe house guarding Sadie Banning in order to apprehend him. Me and Mrs. Edmonds would feel a lot better if you could send an officer or two to assist the two agents at the safe house. Absolutely, Special Agent Rodriguez. Send me the safe house location and I'll get someone right over. Detective Hepworth sounded like a man with all the enthusiasm you want to hear from a police officer. He really wanted to help. Sending it now, Detective Owen. Dan, send your best. Robert Cassidy is one of the most dangerous men on the planet. He's ruthless, vicious, but most of all he's highly intelligent. He conned his way out of the most secure prison in the United States with some vinegar and a prison uniform. I sure will, Agent. Good luck in Denver. The detective offered his best wishes before hanging up the phone. Agent Rodriguez redialed another number as I began to notice we were turning around. A voice answered. Yeah, this is Special Agent Rodriguez. Robert Cassidy has been sighted in Dallas, Texas. He's murdered Ashley Benning's father, Jeff. Tortured him before he killed him. Most likely for Ashley's location. He's taken a car, so we believe he's heading for Denver. I need you to send five agents to meet me at San Antonio International Airport. I have a helicopter arranged. Well, he won't risk flying. We can get there hours before him, and we'll be ready for him. 
You and Barkin stay with Sadie. I've got a few Dallas PD officers coming to assist you soon. Call me if anything comes up. The agent hung up the phone and sighed with relief. It obviously felt good to finally have a pin down on Robert's movements and have his response planned accordingly. I stared out of the window, wondering how on earth my life would come to this. Part 2 It seemed like only yesterday that I first began to realize just who Robert Cassidy was. Around two years into our relationship, not long after Sadie's first birthday actually, Robert continued to be absent for periods of time, usually claiming he was on work trips courier. He'd miss key events like anniversaries, birthdays, Thanksgivings, Christmas, you name it. At first I thought he was cheating on me, I mean, why wouldn't he? Jeff did, and Robert was the most gorgeous man that I'd ever met. When he returned from one of his trips, I waited until he'd left the house. I began going through his things, expecting to find some used condoms, hairs from another woman, shirts smelling of perfume. Well, you get the point. I never found anything, though. However, what I did find was puzzling. His clothes were clean, unscented, unmarked. It was like they were new. But eventually, that's when I realized. It's because they were. On this particular occasion of me inspecting the suitcase... I noticed that Robert had forgotten to remove the price tag off of one of the shirts. So I went digging, in his pockets, in his coats, and then in the car. That's where I found something finally. It was a receipt for a clothing store in Birmingham, Alabama. Robert had purchased around five shirts and three pairs of pants, the precise amount of clothes that he'd left with. I gently confronted him about the receipt, telling him that I innocently found it whilst cleaning the car. He didn't rattle. He began to smoothly explain that he'd simply had a bad nosebleed and that it had ruined his clothes. I would have accepted this explanation, but one thing played on my mind, so I countered and asked him why he needed to replace every shirt. And that's when the mask slipped for the first time. Robert's surface of suave, charm and charisma cracked before my very eyes. His brows lowered, his smile dropped, and his pupils dilated. Have you been looking through my things, Amy? His menacing tone paralyzed me. He started to advance on me, backing me right up against the bedroom wall. His eyes bored holes into my soul. He grabbed my wrist and squeezed hard. It began to hurt as the blood started to cut off from my hand and began to throb. It was as if he was trying to detect any lies by feeling my pulse. Well, I quivered. No, I'm sorry, Robert. I'm sorry, I wasn't snooping, I promise. Please, you're hurting me. I begged him to stop. I could see by Robert's face that he enjoyed my fear. It pleased him. It excited him. No, you were questioning me. You were calling me a liar. There was a venom behind his restraint. No, I promise, I wasn't. I was just trying to do something nice. Tidy the car for you. Put your things away. I was just being a good wife. Please, stop. He eventually let go. I dropped to my knees and cradled my swollen hand. I looked up at Robert as he stood over me, looking down at his pathetic wife. I waited for him to strike me as I cowered, but instead his menacing, emotionless glare transformed back to the superficial, charming smile that my friends and family had come to know and love. 
I um, appreciate the gesture, but there was no need, my love. In fact, I have another bit of work, you see, all the way in Atlanta. So I'm going to head out, maybe hit the casino. Meanwhile, you're going to put all those clothes back in that case and have it packed and ready for when I get back. Understand? I nodded, tears bursting through my clenched eyelids. Robert's fake smile made my blood run cold as I imagined the monster underneath. Then, just like that, he was gone, leaving me wondering who or what Robert Cassidy really was. I began to search online for people who appeared to be friendly and charming on the surface, but underneath they seemed not all there. The recurring word that kept coming up was psychopath. I thought psychopaths were crazy people who were locked up in mental hospitals and head-butted walls. It turns out they're something far more sinister. They are wolves dressed as sheep. I read an article written by Dr. Hare at the University of British Columbia, in which he talked about a test or a checklist he'd developed in order to identify if someone was a psychopath or had psychopathic tendencies. I went down the list and assessed Robert's behaviour. Superficial charm. Check. Inflated sense of self-worth. Check. Pathological lies. Check. When I told him to get a job that didn't involve so much travelling, he'd say that I was controlling him, making him give up a job that made him happy. He made me feel like I was the controlling burden. Manipulative behaviour. Check. On one of the rare occasions that Robert was home, which were very rare indeed, I might add, well, the one incident that really sticks in my mind was when we were sat in the living room watching a news report about a couple who were attempting to raise money for a terminally ill child in order to give him a trip to Disneyland. I felt heartbroken watching this mother just wanting enough money to take her dying baby boy on one last family vacation before she lost him forever. Robert sat watching these people, totally emotionless. The only time he spoke was when he accused a couple of faking crying on TV simply because they wanted a free holiday. He then added it was pointless giving money to someone who'd be dead soon. Well, his lack of compassion chilled me. The fact I'd just given birth to this man's child, that he had a baby just like these people, and yet he didn't see the point of giving just a few dollars to a couple of complete strangers so they could give their little boy one last shred of happiness before he passes. Lack of empathy. Check. Robert Cassidy, my husband, was a psychopath. Well, I read that psychopaths make up about 1% of the population. Interestingly, most of them actually live normal lives. Now, don't get me wrong, they're pretty much assholes, thieves, con men, womanizers, but most of them aren't violent. They never physically hurt anyone. At this point, I honestly convinced myself that Robert was in that category. That was until two weeks later, when the news report aired covering the brutal rape and murder of Violet Walsh. Violet Walsh was a 20-year-old student who went missing in Montgomery, Alabama. Her mutilated body was found three days after her disappearance in Oak Mountain State Park, just outside Birmingham. She was last seen leaving her college dorm around 9pm, she told her roommate that she was going to see her boyfriend and informed her that she'd be back in the morning. Violet never returned home that morning, causing her roommate to become concerned. When questioned, the boyfriend claimed she'd never arrived that evening 
He just assumed she'd blown him off for the night. The news reported informed the audience that they couldn't go into too much detail regarding the specifics of this horrifying and brutal murder, but they did say the killer had abducted Violet, taken her to a remote location in the park, and committed the heinous acts of violence over the course of a few hours. As the broadcast went on, my heart began to pound harder and harder as each piece of significant information was like a nail being hammered into my chest. They said the nature of the crime and the sadistic methods of torture and mutilation matched the M.O. of around 20 other violent murders involving young women throughout a number of locations in the United States. The locations they listed were all locations that Robert had worked since he got his job. The news reporter went on to inform the audience that the FBI were looking for a man in connection with the offences, who they dubbed the Cross Lines Cannibal. The pseudonym was based on the fact his crimes crossed state lines as well as the violent nature of the murders themselves. I sat there, convincing myself that this was purely circumstantial. This could have all just been a string of haunting coincidences. But then they brought up the suspect sketch. My heart fell into my stomach as soon as I saw that drawing. It was Robert. His slick back hair, his square jaw, his piercing green eyes, his perfectly moulded nose. I pulled out the laptop and Google searched the drawing. The drawing was actually done by Kansas State PD around 14 months before the Violet Walsh murder. The sketch had been drawn when another girl, Julia Deveron, was found dumped in an alley in Park City, Kansas. Her body butchered and mutilated in a similar fashion to the other victims. A man was seen leaving the vicinity shortly after the murder was thought to have taken place. A witness told KSPD that he'd seen a man leaving the area with blood splattered around his mouth, neck and chest. The witness asked him if he was okay or if he needed an ambulance. The man reportedly replied, Yes, I'm fine. It's just a nosebleed, before making a hasty retreat from the area. When I read that line, I collapsed. I was astounded and horrified by the revelation that my husband, my actual husband, was the most wanted serial killer in North America. I continued to Google myself into a frenzy, learning the horrible details of all the brutal and unspeakable things that Robert had done over the course of the last decade. From the official FBI website, I learned that the cross-line cannibal was suspected to have been responsible for over 23 murders across 17 different states. They provided a phone number for anyone with information and offered a $100,000 reward for anyone who had information leading to his arrest. Well, it took a few weeks to overcome the denial, but eventually I picked up the phone. Rodriguez broke the silence. I'm sorry about Jeff. A horrible way for a man to go. I wiped a tear that had broken from my iris. It's okay. I mean, he wasn't very nice to me, but, you know, there was a time when he was. He was the father to one of my kids. Well, I didn't like Jeff very much, but in a strange way, I think there's a small part of me that will always love him. And for him to go like that... I winced, unable to finish my thought pattern nor my sentence. The agent noticed my self-pity. He saw me becoming frustrated with myself for letting Robert Cassidy into my head, allowing him to affect me in such a way. I don't know if I can do this again. 
God, I brought this man into our lives. He's got my ex-husband killed, and now my daughters are at risk. I just can't face him again. I just can't. I began to cry. Let me tell you something that I've never told anyone. The agent offered me a break from thinking about Jeff and what Robert did to him, and I took it. Go on, I invited. When we were looking for the cross-line cannibal, I just thought he was like every other serial killer out there. Finds one, rapes one, kills one. All in their own special little way. All to get the world talking and make them feel special. You know, once you've seen one serial killer, you've kind of seen them all. But, uh, well, if we're going to be truly honest here, the day we raided your house to arrest Cassidy and take him into custody, I knew the minute I read him right that he was something else entirely. When we took him to Florence and me and Quincy got him in that interrogation room, I didn't see a man who'd done bad things, or a classroom textbook serial killer. No, I saw a very bad man who loved to do even worse things. He spoke about the strength and technique needed to sodomize someone with a tree branch. He talked about the taste of his living victim's flesh, like he was Duff fucking Goldman talking about a sponge cake. At one point, he even joked about how chewy the fat ones can be. He also demonstrated how he choked one girl with barbed wire as he curled her like a barbell, describing in detail how his mouth tore back to her earlobes. He talked about every sick and twisted thing he did to his victims, and he did it like he was talking about how he fastens his fucking shoelaces. Now, I've had all types of criminals in that room, Psychopaths, sadists, cannibals, rapists, murderers, narcissists. And yet never in my life have I met one that I could say combined them all. For the first time in my life, the man across from me terrified me. I think that's because I wasn't even sure if he was a man. We had to interview that man for nearly seven hours while he teased the district attorney into dropping the death penalty. In return... He'd give us the locations of a number of burial sites. Here we'd find the mutilated bodies of ten missing girls. Anyway, Amy, my point is that for every minute of every one of those seven hours, I was scared. Didn't matter that he was chained to a desk and had two armed officers aiming pistols at him. He made me shiver. His coldness, his maniacal chuckle... The way he licked his lip every time he spoke about tearing flesh from women's necks with his bare teeth. When the DA gave him life instead of death, I'm not ashamed to say I whimpered. Because I know while ever that man is alive, he's a risk to everyone he meets. The agent said, staring vacantly forward. I know, I added. But yet, when we told you that all we had was circumstantial evidence... We said we needed a confession to catch him. We asked if you'd wear a wire. You remember what you told me? Um, not really. He said, Agent, I brought this man into my children's lives. I'm their mother and I'll do anything to get him back out again. I'll do anything I need to. You weren't scared. You weren't deterred. You were focused. So please, Amy, don't let him get in your head. You took him down once, and you can do it again. You're the strongest and bravest woman I know. Much braver than me, but together, we can't stop him. So, let's go do it, the agent said, smiling at the end. 
I appreciated his kind words. I appreciated the pep talk. It was definitely needed. Oh, and Amy, the agent began to add. I looked up at him. He's murdered three people and assaulted another that we know of. We catch him, and this time there'll be no deals, no trades, no excuses. He will be sentenced to death. We shared a tense stare, both willing each other to focus. If we got to Ashley before Roberts, we could catch him, and all this would be finally over. Part 3 the plane landed at Denver International Airport at 9pm. As soon as I turned my mobile on, I attempted to contact Ashley, but her phone was still going to voicemail. I began to imagine the ways I'd kill her when I eventually saw her. Special Agent Rodriguez began calling around as our vehicle tore at high speeds towards the university. He arranged for the Denver Police Department to send officers to the university and get Ashley into protective custody and search for any sign of Robert Cassidy. No one spoke, as we were all mentally preparing for the showdown which was about to happen. Agent Rodriguez's ringtone suddenly broke the silence, making all the agents and myself gently startle in our seats. Rodriguez answered the phone. Hey, Special Agent. Got an officer, Dave Miles, here. Says he's been sent to assist us. Says he's been sent by Detective Dan Hepworth. Says you knew all about it, Agent Quince questioned. Yeah, that's fine. Is he on his own? Rodriguez asked. There was some indistinct conversation that was inaudible to us before Quince replied. Yeah, just him. Says Hepworth is sending some more, though. They're on their way. Okay, that's fine. Just make sure you check IDs upon entry and stay vigilant. We'll be in touch once we're set up at the university, Agent Rodriguez instructed, before saying his official goodbyes and hanging up. I ask for assistance in guarding a defenseless child from the most sadistic serial killer since John Gacy, and what do they do? One fucking officer they send. One. The agent shook his head in disgust. Ah, budgets must be stretched again, I assume. Be quipped. The other agents chuckled in agreement. How long to work at the university? I asked. Rodriguez checked the sat-nav. Fifteen minutes. Don't worry, Amy. I just got word that the police are at the campus right now. They've set up checkpoints at the campus, clocking everyone who enters and exits the site. The other officers are looking for Ashley as we speak. There's no way he's got there before us. So unless he's driving the Millennium freaking Falcon, then we got at least two hours on him. Best get your foot down then, I instructed, not in the mood for jokes. We pulled up at the university campus at 9.35 p.m., where we were greeted by a large collection of Denver police. There must have been over 30 officers swarming around the campus. Some were checking vehicles and students as they passed through the checkpoints, while others were patrolling and interviewing with people passing by. We got out of the vehicle and headed over to what I assumed was the commanding officer. Agent Rodriguez approached him. Special Agent David Rodriguez, Quantico. Are you in charge? He said as he held out his badge. Welcome, Special Agent. Lieutenant Stanley Watkins, Denver PD. We spoke on the phone, he replied. Uh, of course, well, i got to say I'm really impressed by your precinct's response. Other departments' response to this has been a uh, little lackluster. They asked for some Dallas officers to attend an at-risk person at their home. 
They sent one guy, and he got there too late. The subject was murdered by Cassidy, and then when I asked for some more officers to assist my agents at a safe house in Fort Worth, again, they only sent one officer. Ah, I can't get the staff some days, can you? Disgraceful, truly. I followed the two men as they made their way into the building. They continued conversing. Any sightings of either Ashley or Cassidy? The agent asked. Negative on both fronts. No sign of Cassidy. Well, in regards to the girl, her room's empty. No sign of Miss Benning or her roommates. We're going around the whole campus and asking for any witnesses who know of their whereabouts. The officer answered. Well, what does that mean? Was there any sign of a break-in or a struggle? Where's my baby girl? I intervened, slightly losing it. My outburst combined with the agent and the officer both trying to settle me was interrupted by a mouthy and dinky young woman with jet black hair and soft gothic makeup. She was marching towards us, stomping her feet, shouting the odds. Oi, what's the 5-0 doing trashing my room? I ain't done nothing. She was really fuming. You're Ashley Benning's roommate, the agent asked. Yeah, what's this about? Is it about Ashley? What's she done now? God, I'll kill her. My things are everywhere. She roared at the agent. She's not done anything. There's someone dangerous on the loose that may not only have Ashley's location, but also a reason to harm her. You know where she is. It's really important we get her into protection. Where's my daughter? You must know where she is. She isn't answering the phone. The girl looked to me and her anger washed away once she saw my expression and realized the gravity of the situation. Um, yeah, she went on a date. Told me not to wait up, she said with a reserved tone. With who? I asked, with my heart in my mouth. Um, don't know. She was talking to him on Tinder today. He invited her to meet tonight. She said his name was Roman. That's all I know. Is she in danger? She began to sound as worried as I did. We all looked at each other. Mm, I uh, think so, the agent responded honestly. We ran as fast as we could back to the SUV. The lieutenant agreed he'd get their department to gain access to Ashley's cell records and try and find the last number she called. As soon as he had a location, he'd be in touch. We hopped in the vehicle and began to make our way to the beltway, ready to head in any direction we needed. Well, the call came through quicker than I'd expected. Agent Rodriguez's phone once again lit up and jingled, and the agent hit the green button without haste. Yes, Lieutenant. What do you have for us? Calls from a burner. It's unregistered. We don't know who it belongs to, but the cell phone is on, and the last tower we got a signal off was at um, 70th Avenue, Adam City. Before that, it pinged off a tower near Sand Creek Landfill. The Lieutenant went quiet as he accessed his knowledge of the city of Denver. Yeah, it looks like he's potentially heading to the Rocky Mountain Refuge Park. The lieutenant's tone didn't sound like he was guessing. He sounded confident, but trailed off as he realized the gravity of his words. Ever since he was seen that night in Park City, every Cassidy victim was found in a remote woodland area. The agents tried their best not to look me in the eye as I winced in my seat, wondering what horrific state we might find Ashley in if we didn't get there fast enough. A convoy consisting of the FBI's SUV sandwiched by two Denver PD cars hit the blue lights and tore down the 25 at breakneck speed. 
I could see the agents checking and loading their weapons. Well, I had no weapon, and I had no lieutenants to liaise with. I was simply alone, alone with my thoughts and my doubts. As we pulled up to the parking lot on 96th Avenue, the convoy swarmed into the park, looking for any sign of Robert or Ashley. Immediately, we noticed a single vehicle in the lot. The feds and the cops made their way over, guns drawn. The vehicle was gently tilting and rocking. Someone was inside. Visit the FBI. If anyone's there, please make it known, as we are armed. Rodriguez warned. The vehicle began to move more vigorously now. We all approached cautiously. One of the officers carefully made his way around the side of the vehicle, again, weapon at the ready. He looked through the window, and my heart was in my mouth. Get off the girl. The officer had seen something that alarmed him. He pointed the weapon into the back seat. I, along with the agents and other officers, ran over to assist. I could see that there was a figure in the back seat, mounting someone else, and I could hear a deep male voice powering over a muffled whine of a female. Get out of the vehicle with your hands up, another officer ordered, and the rocking of the vehicle continued, and the two voices began to get louder. Enough was enough. With two federal agents covering them with weapons up, one of the officers ripped open the car door and pulled the man by the scruff of his collar, backwards out of the car and onto the dirt. The man, who was exposing himself, scuttled on the ground, desperately trying to get to his feet with his trousers around his knees. As he got to his feet, dressed himself and looked up, he found that he had around seven pistols aimed at him. On your knees now, now! One of the officers kicked the back of his knees, causing his legs to fold and therefore complying with the order. He looked around, embarrassed, shocked and scared. He was also young, blonde and pale. It wasn't Robert. Hey, what the hell's going on? A half-dressed tart came stumbling out of the car, realigning her skirt. Hey, get off him, she added. Ashley. I snapped sharply. Well, that tart was my daughter. Oh my God, Mom, what the hell are you doing here? She asked, mortified. Despite my anger at her behavior, I ran to her and hugged her. I had tears in my eyes. I was just happy to know she was okay. Mom, what on earth are you doing here? What's going on? Why are you with the FBI? Ashley didn't know which question to ask first. I closed my eyes for a second as I gulped, before staring her dead in the eye. It's Robert, I said. Her eyes widened and she turned her head slightly as if bracing for what I was about to say next. He's escaped. As soon as the last syllable left my lips, Ashley broke. After 15 minutes consisting of calming Ashley down and her introducing me to her friend, Roman Manning, and the police releasing him from gunpoint, Roman left in his car and Ashley jumped in the back of the SUV with me and Agent Rodriguez. Your sister's in a safe house in Fort Worth, and that's where we're going now. We're going to stay there until they catch him, I informed her. That's right. I'm going to escort you and your mother back to Texas, and my team is going to stay here and wait for Cassidy to expose himself. We strongly believe he is here. 
Agent Rodriguez informed Ashley as he started the car and poured onto the highway. Okay, I don't understand, though. Why would you think he'd come for me? He wouldn't know I was in Denver. Her question caught me off guard. I wasn't ready to give her the answer, and she sensed it. Me and the agent shared a concerned look. He nodded to me as if to tell me honesty was the best policy, and Ashley sensed that too. Mom, what's happened? She asked, concerned. What followed was the hardest conversation I've ever had to have. The sound of my little girl's wail that rang throughout that Denver night sky will haunt my mind forever. I didn't go into the detail about the horrible things Robert had done to Jeff, but for all his faults, Ashley knew her father wouldn't have given up her location easily. Her imagination was her own worst enemy. We arrived at the airport and boarded the plane back to Texas. It took the entire two-hour flight for Ashley to stop crying and fall asleep. I cradled her in my arms the whole flight. It felt like a double-edged blade, as much as I could tell she was in pain over the fate of her father, it was nice to finally feel like I had my baby girl back. The plane landed and Agent Rodriguez escorted us off the plane and to the Fort Worth airport parking lot, where another SUV with two agents inside was waiting. As we unlocked the vehicle and began to climb in, Rodriguez switched his cell phone on, now that he was off the plane. He looked at his notifications and began to look a little confused. Is everything okay? I asked. Um, yeah, I think so. Sorry, just one minute. The agent sounded flustered, and he held a finger up, signaling for me to give him a minute to collect his thoughts. He began to dial a number. Come on, come on. What the hell? The agent said as his phone call wasn't answered. He sighed in frustration. What's going on, agent? I asked intently. Quince and Barkins not answering. Protocol states they should call and check in every hour to let me know everything's okay. If the phone's off, they should text. I don't understand. He started to sound really concerned. What about the officer or the detective you spoke with? Hepworth, was it? I asked, unsure of the name. Hepworth, I mean, I've got five missed calls from a Dallas number. Maybe that's the number of the officer he sent to the safe house, the agent said as he pressed redial on the missed call. At the point we were in the vehicle, the Bluetooth caused the phone to come through the speakers. The phone rang a few times before it was finally answered. Captain Reginald Porter, Dallas PD. Hi, um, apologies for my delayed response. I've been on a flight. My name is Special Agent Rodriguez from the FBI, and I think you... Yes, of course, Agent. I've been trying to get in touch with you all night. We believe you're in touch with one of our detectives earlier tonight... Regarding protection for a Jeff Benning? The captain asked. Oh, uh, yeah, I was. I was just trying to get in touch with Dan Hepworth, actually. I was wondering if you knew... No, no. Uh, Detective Richard Earnshaw. The captain interrupted. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was one of the first guys I contacted. Apparently he was reassigned and Dan Hepworth took over. What? What's happened? Rodriguez waited curiously as there was a silence. He's dead. We found him a couple of hours ago in Jeff Benning's garage, along with another officer who he attended the property with, Officer Mills. Agent Rodriguez was stunned, as was I. 
We were speechless, so the captain continued. We found them both stuffed in the trunk of Jeff Benning's car. They'd been ambushed because neither of them got around off them. Both of their necks were broken. Oh, sorry to change the subject suddenly, but you mentioned a Dan Hepworth? What's going on, Captain? Who's Dan Hepworth? How does he have a dead man's phone? Agent Rodriguez demanded to know. Well, I don't know how to tell you this, but we don't have any detectives here by that name. Part 4 It was back. That ringing tone. Hard to describe it, really. Imagine you've just stood next to a grenade that's detonated. Your ears ringing, your mind blank. Shell-shocked is probably the word people use. Oh, the implications of what we'd just learned had everyone's mind scrambled. We'd driven fast all evening, don't get me wrong, but nothing compared to how we were rapidly weaving in and out of traffic right now, desperately trying to get to the safe house. It was pointless, though. Agent Rodriguez got the call from Quince when we landed in Denver, meaning Robert had arrived at the safe house at around 9.40pm. That clever bastard sent us on a wild goose chase to Denver while he went after his real target right here in Texas. Our best hope of Sadie being alive was that Robert wanted her that way, I was trying to tell myself he wouldn't kill her, just to hurt me, but I knew that wasn't true. We pulled up at the safe house at 3.15am. The collection of blue lights, yellow tape and men in white oversuits were not a good sign. I stared in horror out of the tinted window and up at the property's garden path, watching as a pair of stretchers carrying black body bags were wheeled out of the front door of the small townhouse. I, along with Ashley, burst from the car. We ran to the nearest stretcher and screamed at the paramedic to get out of the way. The medical officials protested at our tugging at the zips, frantically trying to open the bag. However, once Special Agent Rodriguez gave them a signal to stand down, they complied and he joined in our checking the ID of the bodies. As the agent pulled the zip down, I was praying I was not about to be greeted by Sadie's face. Thankfully, I wasn't. But what looked up at me had me taken aback. A man, his face was badly disfigured. His nose and top lip looked like they'd been violently bitten off. Both eyes were swallowed up, and I didn't dare look at what other injuries Robert had inflicted on this poor man. Agent Rodriguez grabbed his head with both hands and began to shake it in grief. Oh, God. Barkins, no. Fuck. He was furious, but his anger soon turned to horror and anticipation as he looked at the other stretcher. The size was similar to the one containing the body of Agent Bodkins. I think at this point I knew Sadie wasn't in there, as did Agent Rodriguez. Ashley and I stood in sympathy as Rodriguez marched over to the other body bag. Whoa, 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 sir. I really don't think you want to see... The paramedic tried to warn the agent, but he'd already ushered him out of the way, and he opened the bag. Rodriguez looked down at Agent Quince's face and fell to his knees. His pain-filled wails, as he looked down at the brutality that had been bestowed on his best friend and colleague of fifteen years, filled the night air. His reaction gave me deja vu of earlier this evening when Ashley learned of her father. As Agent Rodriguez mourned the death of his two fallen comrades... I made my way into the safe house. 
A police officer on the doorstep attempted to stop my entry. Excuse me, ma'am, but this is a crime scene and you can't... Well, I didn't let him finish his sentence before I pushed him aside and informed him it was my daughter they were supposed to be protecting. I also said that if there was anyone who could find a clue to her whereabouts, it'd be me. Oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am. I didn't realize who you were, he said sincerely as he leant in close. He began to whisper. Oh, the two cops he killed were good guys. Both had families and kids. He kissed his teeth in anger, and he continued. I'll escort you inside so you don't disturb any potential evidence, but, but if you can in any way help us catch that bastard, then you're welcome to come inside. This way, ma'am. He ushered me into the building. Put this on. Don't touch anything and sign this, he said, as he handed me a forensic oversuit and a clipboard. I complied and entered the house. The hallway didn't seem too disturbed. I noticed the garage door was ajar, but other than that, nothing to note. However, once we made our way down the hall, a smell filled my nostrils, a mixture of metallic odor and burning flesh. I prepared myself as I went through the living room door. I winced. Unspeakable things had happened in this room. The furniture was all pushed back against the walls to make a large space in the center of the room. Two desk chairs were in the middle of the room, roughly two meters apart. There were torn pieces of duct tape still stuck on the armrests of each chair, as well as the chair legs. A high concentration of blood spatter was on the floor and wall by the first chair, with seven amputated fingers and around five to six teeth laying strewn around in the space surrounding the chair. A claw hammer, some pliers, and a pair of bolt cutters also lay nearby, again all covered in blood. The other chair had areas where the plastic was melted and the fabric was badly singed. A blowtorch lay close by. I held my mouth as I tried not to vomit, but also trying to stop the flow of horrible nasal indicators of what had occurred here. I walked out of the room and made my way upstairs, following the landing round to the end bedroom. The door was ajar. I opened it fully. The room was pristine, no signs of violence or struggle in here, thankfully. The bed she was sleeping in, the sheets had been carefully pulled back, and Sadie had been carefully lifted out of it. Robert's antics downstairs were clearly carried out while Sadie was sleeping. She was a deep sleeper, fair enough, but Robert surely must have gagged these men. There's no way they didn't scream. I picked up the pillow, pressed it against my face, and inhaled deeply the smell of my beautiful baby girl. I began to sob as I wondered how on earth I could have failed my children so badly. But then I felt it. Inside the pillowcase was a faint, crinkly outline of a sheet of paper. I dug my hand into the pillowcase and fished it out. I tried to hold it still, but my hands were shaking. Finally, I composed myself and flicked the paper outwards so its message became clear. Dear Amy, Sadie is safe for now. You have my word. I've had more than enough fun since I left Florence, as I'm sure you're aware of. But believe me, I have one more in me. You or Sadie. The decision is yours. Come to the old office space on Worth Heights. I'll give you till 5am. If you don't show or I see a pig or a fed, I will tear her to pieces. You know I will. Yours sincerely, Robert. 
my heart began to pound, half out of panic, half from anger. That vile bastard. I screwed up the paper and threw it in the small bin in the corner of the bedroom. I made my way outside. The police officer on the door signed me out and requested me to hand in my suit. He asked if I'd found anything, and I said, well, I lied to him, saying I hadn't. Mom, is Sadie okay? Is she in there? Ashley asked in a panic. I grabbed her shoulders and shook my head. No, baby, she isn't. He's taken her, I informed him. Her face began to deform in horror, to which I calmed her down by saying, That's a good thing, honey. Everything else left behind is not in a good way. He clearly wants her alive. Agent Rodriguez came running across the garden. We know where he is, he said as he waved me over to his car, and I gasped inside. Where? I asked tentatively. He's at the airport. He took Quince's car. What he doesn't know is that the car has a tracker. I've alerted the airport to be on the lookout for him and Sadie. He's trapped. Dallas PD and Fort Worth PD are already swarming the building. Let's go get him. He then opened the rear door for me to jump in, and I thought on my feet. I'm not coming, I said bluntly, and neither is Ashley, I added. Both Rodriguez and Ashley looked at me as if I'd just peeled my face off. What? they both exclaimed. If I'm there when you arrest him and he knows the game is up, you could kill Sadie just to get one last dagger in. Please, go get my baby and I'll stay here with Ashley, I said, trying to sound convincing. Well, Ashley wasn't happy. Rodriguez, on the other hand, I could tell he got my point. He promised me he would call once they had Cassidy in cuffs and Sadie safe. He made his way over to the car and began to climb in when, all of a sudden, Ashley followed suit. You can sit here all you want, but I'm going to go get my sister. She said, that stroppy teen charm shining through. I did my best to sound against the idea, but this was ideal. I protested, but I knew Ashley wouldn't back down, and she didn't disappoint. Agent Rodriguez promised me he'd keep her safe, and I believed him. Even if I didn't know he was going to arrest Cassidy, I would believe him. As soon as they left, I checked my watch. 4.38 a.m. I quickly went over to the cop on the door who signed me in earlier, I started to shiver the best I could. I'm sorry to bother you. I don't know if it's a shock or the cold, but I'm really shaking. Do you mind if I sit in your car? I asked, giving my eyelashes a flutter for good measure. He smiled and dug his hand in his pocket, pulling out a set of keys. Just turn the ignition to the first point. That'll activate the heating, he said with a friendly nod. I thanked him and made my way over to his Fort Worth police cruiser. I let myself into the driver's seat, making sure he wasn't looking as I did so. And before anyone knew anything, I turned the key and went. Part 5 I pulled into the lot that surrounded the MiG-constructed tower block. I'd read about this on the news. The five-story building had been commissioned a year ago for around 25 student flats to be built for students of the Fort Worth University. It was in the middle of its construction, so it was around 60 foot of wood flooring, scaffolding and plastic sheeting. I exited the car and had a look around. I saw a pair of tyre marks leading to a space in front of the main entrance, but no other vehicle was in sight. 
I assumed Robert had driven to the airport and got a taxi from there to here, knowing full well the vehicle had a tracker. I don't doubt the two agents told him everything he needed to know with the things he did to them. I made my way up the tower block. Each floor was based with a thick sheeting of plywood sitting on the steel frame of the building. There was a small hatch with ladders in the centre of each floor, which permitted users to climb the tower. I began the climb, carefully making my way up each set. As I got to the foot of the final ladder, I heard a small child whimper. A deep, assertive voice followed, telling the child, Shh, I think your mommy's here now. The adrenaline was at its peak as it pumped through my body. Had it been any other situation, I would have fled for my life. However, he had my child, so I climbed to fight. I peeked my head up through the hatch. I scanned the area. Mommy! A soft voice cried from the corner of the building, and I immediately looked over. There she was, my baby girl, safe and sound. But there, restraining her, blade to her neck, was Robert. I assured Sadie it would be okay and let her know that Mummy was here to save her. Well, reunited at last, baby girl, Robert said in his usual charming voice. I hope you appreciate the amount of people I had to kill to arrange this little rendezvous. I hope you realize how much I love you, Amy. He actually sounded believable. You're a monster. You don't know what love is. Now let my baby girl go. I tried to be assertive. No, I loved you, Amy. I mean, look at you and look at me. You were beat up, wrong side of 35, saggy and lumpy in all the wrong places. I could have any woman I wanted, but I chose you. That's love, Amy. And you betrayed me. His mask was off now. His darkness exuded towards me. He killed all those girls. And yet, I didn't kill you. Despite you always snooping in my things and spying on me like the paranoid freak you are. How can you say I don't love you? You're sick, I said bluntly, causing Robert to chuckle. I'm not sick. Sick people don't escape from the most secure facility in the U.S., Sick people don't manipulate the FBI into going on some wild goose chase all night. You're a sick bastard. What you did to Jeff, to those officers, to the agents. I began to reel off the list of bodies that had piled up in the last 24 hours. Hmm. Those officers, they beat me in my custody cell when I first got arrested. Those agents. You should have seen how they belittled me in my interviews. And Jeff... <laughs> Do not hold a candle to that coward. He's not worth your grief, he said, grinning at me, as he slapped a piece of tape over Sadie's mouth. What do you mean? I asked, carefully eyeing the sledgehammer resting against the wall by Robert. I tried to carefully make my way over to it. Well, you see, I needed to torture him so badly that you guys would assume he told me where Ashley was. <laughs> That son of a bitch gave up her location after the very first cut. He barely put up a fight. Even I didn't expect that. Well, I needed him to look so bad that I carried on anyway. As I began hammering pins up his toenails, he screamed like a little bitch. He even begged me to stop and let him call her. He said he'd invite her over, pay for her flight and everything. 
That sack of shit was willing to hand his daughter over to me, simply to save his own skin. I did you and Ashley a favor, believe me. His vacant look as he discussed the torture of Jeff chilled me to the core. He continued. I mean, don't get me wrong. I could have just killed these two feds the same way I killed the two police. Quick, simple, snuffed out with a firm snap of the neck. Attack my body, if you will. I can forgive that, but don't attack my legacy. That's a very different story. During my interviews, those agents called me stupid for underestimating you. They called me textbook and ordinary for being like every other serial killer. They called me simple for being cold. Those words have rung in my head for two and a half years. <laughs> Who's stupid now? They welcome me in, boiled the kennel, asked me if I wanted cream and sugar. A look on Matt Quince's face when he came in to find his friend with half of his face missing. Priceless. Although it was nothing compared to the look on his face when I lit the blowtorch. His face honestly resembled that of someone reminiscing of happy times. Meanwhile, I stood there feeling nauseous, partially from the adrenaline spike and partially from the vile details provided by Robert. I'd moved to within three meters of the sledgehammer, disguising it as me approaching Sadie. He hadn't noticed, I didn't think. So then, Robert, all this violence and scheming, what's the end game? Why are we here? I asked, now just two meters away from the hammer. Oh, I'm not built for prison, Amy. I don't do well in captivity. Having kids who were bullied in school now taking their insecurities out of people in chains. Knuckle-dragging yards with a baton and a stun gun telling you when to wake, when to sleep, and when to eat, and when to shit. No, if I don't get to be free and hunt, then I'm not long for this world. So I want to go out with a bang. I want to live on in people's memory. I guarantee every police officer in Texas will remember my name. I guarantee Agent Rodriguez will think of me every year when it's his best friend's birthday. And I guarantee either Sadie or you will think of the other after tonight. Depending on how you want to play this, he said, pulling a blade out of his belt. I was one meter from the sledgehammer. This was my chance. I dived for the hammer. I was inches away when a hard, stiff blow struck my face. I hit the floor hard, ears ringing, eyes shaking. A stream of blood poured down my face and ears. Robert was standing over me, brick in hand. My God, he was quick. I tried to crawl to the hammer. It was my only chance. Robert stamped down hard on my hand, causing me to scream in pain. My hand was on fire. I was sure it was broken in every possible place. I cradled it and looked up at Robert in pain, as he smiled at me. I've, I've made my choice. Me. Kill me and leave Sadie alone. I begged in agony, pleading to any shred of decency that Robert had. So be it. He grabbed his blade and advanced on me. Get off my mom, Sadie screamed. She'd freed herself on a piece of glass and was charging towards Robert. I didn't know whether to call her clever or stupid. Robert stood up and grabbed her by the throat and forced her back onto the ground. Sadie winced in pain and began to sob. You're a bad man. You killed my daddy, she said through her tears. 
Robert smiled with pleasure. Wow, Amy, you must really hate me, telling her that that sniffling coward of a man is her father and not the truth, he said, loving every second of it. No, you're right, Sadie, I didn't kill your father, he said, about to reveal who he really was. I took this chance to crawl to the hammer. I turned over and dragged myself towards it. I didn't kill your father because... Robert continued as I looked up for the hammer. It was gone. I was confused. Oh no, he was going to use it on Sadie. I flipped over and looked up. No, he didn't kill your father. I did. Ashley screamed as she swung the sledgehammer hard into Robert's jaw. The impact forced him back, stumbling towards the edge of the structure. As soon as his heels went over, myself, Sadie, Ashley, and Agent Rodriguez watched him spiral 180 degrees and go over the edge, face first. A few seconds later, we heard a sheet of glass shatter, tin split, and a loud thud. Mom, are you okay? Ashley and Sadie ran over and cradled me. Agent Rodriguez pulled out his radio. He informed Control that he had the positive location of Robert Cassidy and Sadie Benny. He requested backup, a paramedic and a coroner. He then came over to me to render first aid. How did you know I was here? I said, my head throbbing. Agent Rodriguez smiled. You honestly didn't think Officer Wise wouldn't report his car being stolen by a mad woman, did you? And the FBI vehicles aren't the only ones with trackers in them, he informed me. Well, me and Ashley came to check on you, saw the car, came up the tower and heard you two going at it. Believe me, it wasn't my idea for Triple H over here to go running in. But I'm happy she did, he added, looking at Ashley with a wink. Around twenty minutes later, the cavalry turned up. Agents came up the structure along with the medical professionals. The medics began treating my head injury as the agents asked where Robert was. He went over the edge. Amy was defending herself. He was trying to force his weapon on her and she kicked him off with her legs and he fell. No doubt about it, self-defense, Rodriguez explained, clearly wanting to keep Ashley away from anything that could potentially come back on her. He continued. Cassidy fell three floors. Looked like he went through that glass structure on the second floor. His body crashed through the roof of the worker's porter cabin. Took a nasty fall. You'll find his body in there, he informed them, ordering the agents to go with the coroner to retrieve the body. As me and my girls were escorted out of the structure, the coroners brought out Robert's body in one of those familiar black body bags on a stretcher. Rodriguez asked the coroner, So, um, he's dead then? To which the coroner chuckled. Oh yeah, nasty fall. Barely had a face left after all that. Neck was broken, as was his jaw. Ashley and I shared a look. She almost looked pleased. I mean, fair play to her. She did catch him a beauty. After a few weeks, me and my girls were back in San Antonio, trying to get on with our lives. I sat Sadie down and told her the truth about who her father was. And she took it well. She's a strong girl. I decided not to tell Ashley what Robert had told me about Jeff. I told her that Robert was impressed with how much she'd had to hurt him in order to get him to disclose the information. I'd rather her have a good lasting impression of her father. 
I'd rather not give Robert his dying wish of tormenting people's memories. One morning I went to collect the mail. As usual, there was a mountain of bills. Agent Rodriguez, however, had promised the reward for his arrest would be processed to us, given our assistance in the case, this time and previously. One letter stood out, however. It was a unique envelope. The address was handwritten and the stamp was Canadian. I tossed the letter on the counter, deciding to read it later with a glass of wine. The phone stuffed in my pocket began to vibrate, causing me to drop whatever I was doing. I pulled it out of my tight jeans after some difficulty. It was Agent Rodriguez. I answered quickly before the call rang off. Well, hello there, Supervisory Special Agent Rodriguez, I said, emphasizing Rodriguez's new title. He'd been given a well-deserved promotion after recent events. Amy, where are you? Where are the girls? He sounded panicked. I wasn't prepared for this. They're at school and I'm at home. Why? What's going on? My voice was rushed and trembling. The morning after Cassidy's death, a local taxi firm reported one of their drivers missing. They said he never returned to base that morning. Fort Worth PD finally got around to investigating it. They found his car abandoned on some rail tracks near where Cassidy fell. They tracked the vehicle's movements using the GPS. The last journey was from Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, heading to the Worth Heights office park. That's how Roberts got there after dumping Quince's car. We decided to carry out a forensic search of the taxi driver's car. We harvested plenty of DNA, which is likely to be the driver of the vehicle. We compared that to the body found in the porter cabin after Cassidy's fall. It's a match, he said, as I faded out. There it was again, the deaf tone of my ears, the blood pumping far too hard. I was drowning once again. I could hear Rodriguez in the background shouting through the phone, but, but it wasn't registering with me. Faintly I could hear, Amy, are you okay? And... I'm sending a car for you and the girls. Stay on the phone. I dropped the phone as the panic set in. I stumbled over to the counter. I placed both hands on it to get my balance and prevent myself from falling to the ground. I looked down at the tile surface and the out-of-place letter stared right back up at me. I composed myself and began tearing at the envelope and pulled out a single sheet of A4 paper. It read, Dear Amy, I guess this letter won't come as a shock, as I assume by now you're aware the man who they carried out of that cabin wasn't me. He was a nice fella. I didn't want to tear his face off honestly, but I needed a backup. Tell Ashley that she has quite the swing on her. Kudos. I have no current plans to come for you. I can assure you of that. You have my words. I'm having far too much fun here in the Great White North, though. There will be a time, however, that my plans change. But until then, I wish you the best. Thinking of you always. Yours truly, Robert. So what did you think of that one? Well... I have to tell you, that had me hooked right from the start. 
all the way through to the end. And oh my God, what a twist there at the end. Ah, <laughs> fantastic story. Um, first time I've worked with this author and it's been an absolute pleasure. A roller coaster ride from the start to the finish. Um, do you agree? Please tell me you do. If not, doesn't matter. Your thoughts, feelings, desires, and anything else you want to say in the comment section below the video. And as ever, I'll do my best to join in the conversation. Well, that's Monday night for you. Um, might be around tomorrow night, not sure yet, but definitely on Wednesday. And of course, the podcast will be up on Thursday and I'm back in on Friday. Oh, it just never ends, does it? Well, hopefully it never ends. <laughs> but that is enough for me for one evening. So, until the next time, very, very sweet dreams and bye-bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this story today. It really means a lot to me and to the author of the story, of course. Well, if you want to know more about me, I'm pretty much everywhere on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can download my music on SoundCloud. Um, I've got a Patreon if you feel like. Throw me a dollar or two. Very much appreciated. And of course, on Reddit, I have a place where you can leave stories if you want me to read one that you've written. Well, hoping to see you all again very soon. Till then, sweet dreams, and bye-bye.